Well, hello and welcome to the Ethan Callison Sermons Podcast. My name is Ethan Callison. I'm thankful that you are here listening to God's Word uh, being opened up uh, by myself. Uh, today, I had the opportunity of teaching in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 1 through 12, uh, as we're going to look at a life that's pleasing to God. Uh, now, I hope that this uh, the sermon series and the message that we, we teach here at FCC, we don't just teach for the sake of uh, hearing ourselves talk. We teach for the glory of God that the gospel may be um, proclaimed so that all people would have an opportunity to respond to the good news of Jesus Christ. So in today's message, I hope that you hear the heart of God and what he has for us as followers of Jesus to follow after him. So without further ado, here I am in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 1 through 12, in a life pleasing to God. As we, uh, we continue our sermon series, uh, the best of news for the worst of times in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 this morning. Uh, when, you, when we read this text, when we read Paul's letters, um, we can see some uh, things that are templates almost that he uses. So if you read m- many of Paul's writings, he starts off with a greeting. He identifies himself. He identifies the audience that he's writing to. And then he usually offers a prayer salutation or something of that nature. And then he gets into instructions that he has for them or gets into some theology. But with First Thessalonians, if you haven't noticed, is the first three chapters here when he writes these um, to them is it's all like a narrative. It's his heart. I don't know if you've ever seen, heard someone say, like, I'm just going to speak from my heart right now to you. Like that's the first three chapters of 1 Thessalonians. Paul's just saying, hey, here's my heart for you, and kind of telling them what he has been doing uh, since he left Thessalonica. And now getting into chapter 4, we finally then, he uses this, this word here in verse 1, finally, all of what I'm saying, now I'm finally going to get into some instructions for you. I'm going to get into some uh, things for you to begin to walk out, to, to flesh out there in the church, some instructions for you. It's taken quite a bit of time for Paul to get there because in this, he wants to make sure that they're rooted in their relationship with Jesus. So as we look at a life pleasing to God, the first thing that we're going to see in this text, if you have your sermon notes or a journal in hand, is that walking in the ways of Jesus pleases the Father. Walking in the way of Jesus pleases the Father. When we, uh, when we are followers of Jesus, that's what we do. We follow Jesus. We in, innately try to live our life as that of Christ. Walking in him, obeying him, that's what we're going to see here is we want to obey God. Whatever God has in store for us, that's what we want to do. We want to walk and be obedient to what he says for us to do. Now, in this, it's not an obedience that's just like, hey, because it can come across very legalistic. Like, if we read this text and don't understand Paul's heart in it, that we are to do these things in the likeness of how Christ walked, we could see this and get to believe that, oh, I just need to behave this way, and that earns my salvation, or this is the way in which, the, so that you walk, I'm saved. No, it's from your salvation the Spirit transforms you so that you walk this way, which is the ways of Christ. That may even sound like you have like a master that you're following. I want to walk in the ways of Jesus. I want to walk as how Christ walked. That's what Paul's getting. That's what it means to be a father of Jesus. You live by his ethics and his decisions that he has for us. So we want to obey God. So even in verse 1, when Paul opens this, he says to us, he says, or says to the church in Thessalonica, you received from us how you ought to walk. So when he was in Thessalonica for whether it be three weeks or three months, they instructed them, they commanded them, they gave them instructions of, hey, this is what it looks like to walk like Jesus, these instructions. And even this word here for walk, uh, we read it and you could read it as it's not as if Paul's saying like he's not an occupational therapist or a physical therapist that's like, hey, here's actually how you walk. You pick your left foot up and you put it down, then you pick your right foot up and move it forward further than your left foot and you put it. No, this way in the walk, the word here means behavior. This is how you behave. This is how you act. 
And once again, I want to reference that we don't act this way so that we earn our salvation. Rather, because of our salvation, we then begin to live this way. So every single one of us, we have received instructions or guidelines in how we walk from somewhere. So let's just role play here for a little bit. I wish, I think it'd be pretty fun to do, maybe, maybe some of you will do this, uh, hire somebody to follow you around for a day. And after, now that might be creepy, but for certain parts of the day. And every time you do something, have them ask you, why are you doing that? And then you write it down, or they write it down. Why do you wake up at 5 a.m.? Because I want to get my day started early. Well, why? Why do you want to get your day started early? Because I want to be productive. Well, why, why are you eating that for breakfast? Because it tastes good. Well, why does it taste good? I don't know. That's because that's where my taste buds. Why, why are you driving this way to work? Mm, because it's the fastest way to get to work. Why do you want to get to work so fast? And everything that you do, have them ask the question. Now, probably by like 9 o'clock in the morning, you're like, I'm done with this. Like, I release you of your responsibilities. I'm still going to pay you. But I think that it would bring forth to us for an understanding of where we get our guidelines or where we get our instructions for how we live. And I think that there's three kind of areas that we oftentimes receive uh, our instructions and guidelines. The first, I think, is this, is our friends, those that we live around, those that we mingle with. You may have heard it said that you are the, the average or maybe even the sum total of your five closest friends. So if you just take a personal inventory of the five people that you hang out with the most, you're the sum total or the average of those individuals. And you get your reason for doing things from them. The reason why you have hobbies the way that you do. You may have begun a hobby, then that built that friendship, and then you got even more into that hobby because they were passionate about it, which fueled you and your pain because they have those things. Or you may start wanting to buy something or drive something or have something because they have influenced you to do this. And there's where you get your instructions, or that's where you get your guidelines. For business people, people that run their own businesses, it's like, well, why do you take accounting the way that you do? Well, because my mentor told me to do so. We run our organization, we structure it because of someone that I'm modeled for. We get it from our friends. In student ministry, we call this peer pressure. You get pressured into doing something because of the people that are around you, and they want you to do things. In adulthood, we call it mentorship. So we get it from our friends. The second thing, there we go, finally, some of y'all got the joke. The second thing that I think we get our, our guidelines or instructions from is the culture that's around us. Now, every single one of us, we're born into a culture, our family culture, our life culture, our state culture, all these cultures, and there's nothing we can really do to get out of it or around it. We're just born in it. But we have to come to the realization of that our culture drives us to do something. So even when we look at, like, pop culture, I think that America has pop culture, but I've been in other areas of the world where pop culture doesn't exist. They've done the same things for years, and that is just the culture of their living because they don't have popular culture. They don't have the news outlets and things that we do. So even just like three or four months ago, if a man had a mustache, he's either had that mustache for years or he watched Top Gun and thought he'd look good in a mustache <laughs> after Miles Top. So in this, in my mustache, like Genevieve asked me to shave, and I said I'll shave everything but the mustache because I want some facial hair, and so I had the mustache for a little while. But five months ago, people were like, oh, you got a mustache. Now it's kind of like, oh, you got a mustache. Not, not too bad. You know, our culture kind of guides and directs us in our guidelines and instructions. Or the third thing that I think we get our, our instructions or guidelines from is our past. Our past really depicts our future in a lot of areas. Sometimes we have traumatic pasts that make us do things, make us act a certain way. 
we'll have some anxiety rise up because there's a situation at hand that's very similar to something in the past and it causes us to do something. Our past will guide us on. A lot of us, whether you realize this or not, the way in which your childhood went depicts a lot of how you respond to certain things, live a certain way, and do these things. They're guidelines, they're instructions that you live by, both good, bad, and indifferent. So in this, I want to share one little quick story I've heard before where a uh, a newlywed wife was cooking a ham, whether it be for Thanksgiving or Christmas, but she was cooking a ham, and she cut the end of the ham off and put it in the pan and put it in the oven. The husband was like, why, why did you cut the end of the ham off? I don't know. Mom's always done that. So he went to her mom and said, hey, why, 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 does she, why do you cut the end of the ham off? Like, why do you do that? She said, I don't know. My mom's always done that. So he goes to her mom, now his wife's grandmother, and says, hey, why do you cut the end of the ham off before you cook it? She said, honey, I used to have a pan that wasn't big enough to hold the ham in it, so I cut it off so it could fit. We could eat it for Thanksgiving. And from then, every generation has cut the end of the ham off because the past was like, honey, you realize we just threw away $3.28 in a pound of ham because you, come on now, what's going on here? But in this, we want to obey God. We want to get our guidelines, our instructions from the word of the Lord that guides us and directs us in life. So I urge us to look at the scriptures that are written by the maker of all things, the giver of life, and allow that to tell us how we are to live. In today's society, and I would say probably in the past, we just look at our world as a whole, probably in the past 80 to maybe 90 years, people begin to say or believe that the Bible is old and outdated. Now before that, that was never a thought. People never thought that, never believed that, but in the past 80, maybe 90 years, that's become pretty prevalent or pretty, really, in my generations, it's even more so. Well, that's just old and outdated. The Bible tells us to do that, but it's old and outdated, so therefore, we live in the 21st century, and we shall allow the 21st century to tell us because mankind has evolved, and we just, we just know what's better for us. Now, this, I want you just to journey with me for a little bit and kind of go down this path a little bit. But if we took a flyover of the evolution of mankind, not the scientific from a single cell to a fully grown human being that we are today, I believe in creation, that God created mankind and he made us out of dust into who we are today in, uh, in, in one day. But if we look at the, the evolution of mankind when it comes to the development of human beings, we drive a car because man's mind evolved to developing the car today. You're sitting on a chair because someone got tired of sitting on the ground and said, I want to build something that I can rest on. So if we journey through this and look at a flyover of mankind, any time that man has looked internally to solve a problem, it has always led to death and destruction. It just has. But any time that man looked upwardly to God and said, God, what is it that you have for us? It has always led to life and fulfillment. But we want to look inwardly to try to solve our problems. How can I solve the problem that's before me? What can I do to fix me? And that never leads to an actual solution. It leads to further death and decay. Jesus says this in, in one of his teachings in Matthew 16, verse 25. He says, for whoever would save his life will lose it. That's that inward looking, trying to, I want it to save my life. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So then what does Paul do? What is Paul pointing to as the instructions that we are to live by? Look at verse 3. In verse 3, he says this. Here's the instructions that followers of Jesus are to do. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. You, if you've been with FCC for a while, you've heard me say this multiple times. 
But sometimes we overcomplicate God's will because we're trying to find God's will in a very detailed thing that God's will could be a multitude of things and not one specific thing. Rather, God's will for you in your life is that you would grow in maturation and becoming more like Jesus. In all things, whatever it is, what is ever going to make you more like Jesus, that is what he desires. Your sanctification. It's about your growth in your maturity. You becoming more like him. So even look at this. Glance back in chapter 3 as Pastor Kevin taught this. Look in verse 10 when he writes this. As we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. That's God's will. What is it that you're lacking in? We want to see your faith growing that. In our life group this past Wednesday night, we had a really good conversation about, like, is there a connection between seeing people face-to-face and meeting their maturity in Christ? And we talked about the dialogue and discussion. But we come, yeah, like, Christianity can't be done alone. I can't mature and grow in my relationship with Jesus just by myself. There's an aspect to that, yes. I have to get engaged in God's Word. I have to ask the Holy Spirit to grow me. But I need to see people face-to-face. I need the community of believers to propel me in my relationship with Jesus because they're going to see things in me that I don't see in myself. And they're going to call out sin. They're going to call out weaknesses. They're going to call out blind spots in me that I need to see them face-to-face. They need to know me intimately, and I need to know them intimately so that we grow in our maturation in the person of Jesus. But he does. Paul gets here in this text to some specific things of how we are to grow in our in our metrics, in our sanctification. In verse 3, he gets at this. He says, we need to flee sexual immorality. We need to flee sexual immorality. Now, some of you right now, I believe that your body is beginning to speak to you. And what I mean by that is me just bringing up this topic of sexual immorality. Maybe some of you have some anxiety that's beginning. Your, your chest immediately tightened. Your mind started wondering. Your mind started preparing or thinking about things and preconceived notions of what I believe because we are the church. What I want to do is before we dive into this text, I want us to acknowledge and realize that our body is speaking to us so that we can not handle this text with emotions, but to handle it with logic and reasoning, looking at who and what God is. Some of you have previous hurts of abuse and misuse of Scripture, of slamming certain people for certain things. Some of you right now, you're like, yeah, pastor, let's preach it, man. Like, let's, let's throw those fornicators down to hell. Like, that's, is that how we're to handle it? Some of you right now, you are personally aching because you have a loved one who is caught, whether that be in a sexual immorality, a sexual sin, an affair, idolatry of some sort when it comes to sexual desire, and your heart is aching because they haven't experienced the life that Christ has come to give them. Or you personally are aching because you have a hidden sin in your life that you can't just seem to shake, and you're like, I am not experiencing the life because of this, and no one else knows it. And your body is speaking to you. Listen to your body in that realm as we look through this text. So before we allow our emotions are preconceived, I want us to listen to this Russell Moore quote and allow that as we reflect upon this text. Russell Moore says, he writes this. He says, the scripture's sexual ethic is good for the world because God created the universe to reflect the union of Christ in his church. So the Christian sexual ethic isn't just a good way for Christians to live. This is the way God designed the creation itself, and it's one of the reasons why deviations from a creational biblical sexuality lead to such despair. And it's also the reason why I'm not panicked when I look around at the sexual immorality and sexual brokenness around us. 
when we, when we look at this and we look at you know, ethics as a whole in the scripture, there's a few, few things I want us to see. One is this, is that w- w- there's many times when the, the first century church fathers would look at certain things and they would come together and make decisions about how this is to be handled. So let's just follow a few of them. One of them would be this, when a person who's not a Jew, which the text will say is a Gentile, which means ethnos, someone from another ethnicity, when they come into relationship with Jesus, do they have to become a Jew first before becoming a follower of Jesus? So one of the questions would come is this, must a Gentile, someone from another ethnicity, must they be circumcised first before following Jesus? That was one of the questions. So we see in the book of Acts where we have the Jerusalem council and they gather together and they ask this question, they discuss about it, and they say this, no, a person doesn't need to be circumcised first to become a follower of Jesus. That has nothing to do with their salvation. It was just a custom and a way of a Jew. Now, in that, Jews can continue to be circumcised on the eighth day if they so desire. And another one that they, the conundrum, that ethic of that they battled with and rolled with was this. What can we eat? If you're probably familiar that Jews have a pretty strict dietary, they have strict dietary restrictions. So that they have to eat things that are kosher. They can only eat certain things from certain parts of the body. They can even eat certain animals and all that. So one of the questions came out was, can a Gentile who used to be able to eat everything like pork and bacon, yum, do they have to put that down to become a follower of Jesus? And they gathered and they discussed, and at first they said, no, they can eat things, they can eat anything they want as long as it's not sacrificed and the meat that's sacrificed to foreign idols. And then they met again because there were some churches that were having some other issues around this come up, and all the meat that they found were sacrificed to foreign idols. And it's like, well, we want to eat, we need to eat, but all this meat is being sacrificed to foreign idols, therefore what do we do with this? So they gathered again and made a decision, and they said, look, when we look at God's word and what his ethics tells us to do, you can eat meat of anything that's even been offered to a foreign idol as long as it doesn't cause your brother or sister to stumble in their faith. So we see these, there's a lot of ethical decisions that are made in the first century church where they kind of, were, I would say, from my point of view, released some strict things, some strict laws. It, it just, we see this in the scripture. But there is one thing that was never, quote unquote, released. And this is how we handle sex. This is God's sexual design for mankind. There's never been a reproof that said, hey, but this, this, this country over here, it was common for men to, to have multiple wives. How do we handle that? Oh, yeah, God's word says we can have multiple wives now, so therefore marry whoever you want and do whatever you want. Or, or we, like to, we like to have orgies. We'll see this in 1 Peter chapter 4. We like to have orgies. Okay, well, that's okay because, because God's word is reproofed in that. And it's, no, God's design for sexual matters has always been the same. One man marries one woman forever and ever. They're in unison together. That has been God's ethical decision for us forever. And when I look at the the end of this Russell Moore quote, when he says this, the reason why I'm not panicked when I look around at the sexual immorality and sexual brokenness around us is because we live in a world that has been broken since the fall of mankind. Now in this, this world has digressed greatly. It is in worse shape now than it was yesterday, and it's in worse shape now than it was 200 years ago. But I want you to do this. Go back and read Romans chapter 1 and 2. The vileness that Paul saw in the church of Rome is very similar to what we're going through today. I love this. Paul writes this. He says that the church in Rome has has pursued not of things of God, but have given their minds over to things that are abased. 
I was like, what does that word mean? The word abased means of lesser value. So it's like God had this for you that is beautiful and magnificent and wonderful, but yet you chose this. That's a lesser than. So when we look at this text, such the things of sexual immorality, God has a standard that, that's not just, hey, I want to do this because I don't want you to enjoy certain things, but I have this because it is truth and it is what is best for you. So whether the, that, that's this sexual immorality be like sex before marriage, sex outside of marriage, heteros- or homosexual relations, affairs, and addiction to pornography, the LBGTQ culture or repercussions of the purity culture that my generation grew up in, or any other way that Satan has taken the beautiful design of sex between one man and one woman and distorted it has robbed us of the life that God has for us. And we should not be involved in these things. So when we look at the context of Paul writing this when he says this, the reason why is because in the Roman Greco world, the people were saved out of this stuff and they were still involved with it. And he says, no, there's a better design for you. And you are to adhere to this. You're to live in this. Not to keep you from experiencing something, but to give you life. So why? In verse 4, Paul gives us the why behind this. He says, each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and in honor. This can be said about almost any other vice that Satan uses to rob us of life, whether that be alcohol. Don't be consumed by alcohol because it distorts your view of God, and you can no longer control your body the way that God has designed you to. Or any other addiction of that, eating. I used to gorge myself because that's what released stress in my life. Or, Or gossiping, or dysfunctional living, or smoking, or any other thing that you're submitting yourself to that's not the lordship of Jesus and is controlling you in the holiness and honor of God, you are therefore experiencing death and decay rather than life and fulfillment. You see, when we, when we look at Jesus, when he says in John chapter 10, excuse me, John chapter 15, he says, I am the vine and you are the branches. Do you realize, do you know what a, a vine grows up on? It grows up on a trellis. Without that trellis, that vine can't grow. The law of the Lord is that trellis for us. It provides direction, it provides structure for us so that we can grow and experience life. That we may be a branch adhered to the vine of who Jesus is. Now I hope in the near future that we can have a sermon series that unpacks this and more so does a whole lot more justice on sexual immorality and and how we as the church can come alongside people and and love one and, and, and give great compassion to people in these things. But for now and for today, the text continues and we must continue. In verses 6 through 8, we see that the text encourages us that we, are to, we escape the judgment of God through Christ. When Paul is writing this, one of the things that we're going to see here in a little bit as well is uh, one of the things that he's addressing that Timothy has brought back before them is that the people in Thessalonica were intensely waiting on the return of the Lord. They were waiting for Jesus to come forth and come down, hence our sermon series, The Best of News for the Worst of Times. But we get to escape the judgment of God because of who Christ is. In, in verse 9, as he writes, um, or excuse me, in verse 8, Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. And then that we get to abide in the person of the Holy Spirit. Now, the second half of this text that we're going to see here is that, uh, that when we are, uh, live a life that's pleasing to the Father, is that walking in the ways of Jesus enables us to love one another well. And, and a walking in the ways of Jesus enables us to love one another well. Uh, this part of this section, verses 9 through 12, I could probably like talk for like two hours 
on the, the beautifulness in this text that we're going to see here, but you know, y'all don't want to be here for two hours, so I'll, I'll get you out here pretty early. But in this, I, want, I want, to, want you to think through this. Just journey on me here for a little bit. On this earth, we live under one law. It's a law of nature. This, from the law of nature, has all these other laws. We live under this one law. Uh, like, for instance, this. Because of the law of nature, it tells me that I can't float. No matter how much I want it to, I can't levitate in the air. Gravity, what? Keeps me on the ground. If you were to take a pin in the seat back in front of you and hold it up and drop it, what's going to happen? It's going to fall. That's a law of nature. Or, or, or how about this? One of the laws of nature is that um, when an animal is born, let's take this, say an eagle. An eagle is burst forth from its egg in the beautiful nest. The mother doesn't have to come and tell that eagle how to eat. Doesn't have to tell that eagle how to fly. Actually, they've been known to kick animals out of the nest to get them to fly. They don't go to flight school. They don't go to a training on how to fly. It's natural. It's the law of nature that they begin to fly. Or a fish. A fish doesn't have to be taught how to swim. When they're birthed, they just naturally begin to swim. A snake. No one has to teach a snake how to slither. I can't stand the slithering of a snake. Like, it doesn't have feet and it moves. Freaks me out. Don't like it. I think that's why Satan was a serpent. Freaks me out. But we live under this law, or one of this, I think, is, is the most beautiful laws of nature that I've ever seen in my life, and that is the childbearing process. It is just, and it leaves me in awe. Like to watch Katie, when I watched Katie go from, from, from when she told me she was pregnant, to watch her body completely change because of a little being inside of her, and watching her body be able to hold life inside, was just like, how? She doesn't have to do anything. Like her body takes care of that, that little baby inside of her, feeds it, nurses it, sees it grow up and, and develop. And, and then in that, the birthing process, when we were in that birthing suite and I watched Genevieve being born, was just like, holy cow, God, how did you design? This is incredible. Wow, yes, but incredible. And here was the one that just left me the most mind-blown of all. Within minutes of Genevieve being born, Katie began to produce breast milk. Like, just think about that. 15 minutes before Genevieve was born, there's no breast milk. After Genevieve is born, Katie's body then, because the law of nature, begins to produce milk to sustain life in this newborn. It just was mind-boggling to me. Just a beautiful process. We have this law of nature. Now, anything that falls outside of the law of nature is considered what? Supernatural. So if I did levitate from this stage at 15 foot, your first question wouldn't be, that's a supernatural act. You'd say, like, how did you pull off that magic trick? That was pretty cool. I don't know. I just started levitating. I'd be outside the law of nature. Or if you did hold up that pen and it, you dropped it and it just stayed there, you'd be like, why are we in space? Why, why, what's going on with the earth that's not bringing gravity to it? Or if you've been diagnosed with cancer and you go to have a, a PET scan or a CAT scan or another scan on your body and the doctor comes back and says, I am beyond perplexed. We have images with cancer in your body, but we don't see anything right now. He would say, due to modern science, I cannot describe to you what's going on. It's a supernatural act that you don't have cancer in your body anymore. It's a natural thing. Now, in verse 9 here, I think that we see this blending of natural and supernatural and how God does an incredible work in life. So look at verse 9. He says, now concerning brotherly love. 
That brotherly love is the word Philadelphia. It's one of the three loves in the Greek word, the Greek language. Philadelphia is brotherly love, this love, mutual love that we have for one another. Now, concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. You don't have to be taught how to brotherly love. You don't need instructions. We don't need to take a seminar on how to brotherly love. It just comes natural to you. However, continuing the verse, he says, For you yourselves have been taught by who? God to love one another. God supernaturally steps in and teaches us how we are to love one another. This blending of the natural and the supernatural. Because I know this. I know myself well enough that I'm not going to love someone else. What am I going to do? I want to love myself. I want to do whatever's necessary to protect Ethan. I want to do what's ever necessary to see Ethan. I want to do what's ever necessary to see what's best for Ethan. We are selfish beings. That's the part of the brokenness and the fall of mankind. However, when Jesus comes into our life, we are supernaturally taught by God how to love people. We're supernaturally taught. So that person that you used to not be able to stand, you couldn't be around them, that group of people, whatever it be, you now have the supernatural ability to naturally love them. I know that sentence is an oxymoron, but biblically it makes sense. It just biblically makes sense. Or that person who's an EGR. If you don't know what EGR means, it means extra grace required. That person that you have to give grace to because they just annoy the snot out of you, guess what? You now have the grace because you have received grace yourself. And you love that person. You supernaturally, naturally love that person. You see why? Because God teaches us how to live, how to love. We don't need some Jedi master like Yoda or Obi-Wan Kenobi to teach us how to love. It just, we're taught by the master who is love. Now in that, Obi-Wan failed to take care of Anakin and that started the whole horrible process from there. Obi-Wan failed. God never fails. God never fails to teach us how to love one another. He is the ultimate master in this. So we see people not as projects, we see people not as the sin that's marred in their life, but we see people as made in the image of God and in need of the love of God in their life. And we, just, we desire to be conduits to give them that love. Second thing we're going to see in this text in verses 9 through 11 is that we're to focus on living quiet, peaceful lives, staying out of things that do not concern you. There's an oxymoron in this, in this verse here, in verse 11 in the first half here, when Paul's writing this, he says, uh, I'm going to read actually from the New International Version, the NIV. He says, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. Ambition and quiet are oxymorons. Boisterous. They're going to tell people I know that I would consider ambitious people, they're go-getters. They're loud. They're boisterous. They're going to tell you what they're about. They're, going to just, they're just constantly on the go. He says, no, be ambitious to lead a quiet life. Because in your quietness, you are powerful. When we read in the text, it says that all of Macedonia has heard about God's love to you and through you. Because of you leading quiet lives, because you were quiet in this, all the people have heard. It's an oxymoron. That's what God calls us to, that we are to lead a quiet life. We're to focus on living quiet, peaceful lives. Then he continues in verse 11. He says that we're to mind our own affairs. This is what growing up I heard. Mind your own business, Right? Mind your own business. Don't get in my mind your own business. Part of that is a definitely a biblical thing, that we are to look at our lives and what we're doing in mind. Now, Warren Wearsby says this. He says, believers who are about the Father's business, see this in Luke 2, 49, they do not have the time or desire to meddle in the affairs of others. 
when we are ambitious to lead quiet lives, we don't gossip, we don't slander, we don't get into drama. Why? Because we don't have the time or the desire to do so. We are desiring to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength and to see people come into relationship with him. Then he says, he says, we're to mind our own affairs. And then he says that we're to work with our hand, work with your hands. When Paul writes this, I think this is super duper cool. Uh, when Timothy reported back to Paul, one of the things that, that we believe he told Paul, he says, hey, the people there, they're loving each other really, really well. You know, Paul even says we urge you to do this more and more because even though we don't have to be instructed how to love each other, we need to be provoked to love people more and more. Uh, he, he says, they says they're loving people really well. However, Paul, they are doing this. They've heard you teach, they've heard us teach about the, the second coming of Jesus, but in that they have stopped working and have started just waiting on God. So therefore they are becoming a, a burden on other people to feed them and take care of them. And Paul writes and says, no, you are not just to wait on God to return, but you're to work and wait. And even in this text, when he says, like my dad used to tell me growing up, he says, you don't work, you don't eat. It's a very biblical thing to see. But in that, we are to have compassion on people that don't have jobs and figure out what's going on here. How can we aid and help in feeding those that need food? And in this, in this text, I think this is really cool. In the Roman Greco world, um, they hated working probably more than Americans. Why don't you think about that statement? Many of you have heard, like, man, I hate my job. This, one, this Monday through Friday, 9 to 5, is just killed me. Like, I just work for the weekends. You've heard every country song in the world talks about working for the weekends. <laughs> I think it's an incorrect view. We have a messed up theology because God designed us to work. We are to glorify God in our work, what we do. That's why Paul says to work with your hands. What you do is to bring fulfillment and glory to him. But the Roman Grecos, they hated to work. They hated to work so much that they would do anything necessary not to work which is why they hired people to do the work for them, which we know as slaves. Over half the Roman population were slaves, and they would hire them to do the work for them so they didn't have to do the work themselves. But this is interesting. Uh, Katie and I were watching the documentary on uh, the Roman Colosseum the other day. And it was interesting, that very secular from its viewpoint because it didn't talk anything about how the Christians were sacrificed in the Colosseum. But one of the things they talked about was why the Colosseum was erected in the first place. And the emperor of Rome, I can't remember the name at the time, but the Caesar of, of, of Rome at the time, uh, what happened in the Roman world is Caesars were very narcissistic, and they were always afraid that someone was going to come kill them and come overthrow them and take their reign and rule, which was very true. It was a very reality. We see this all the time, that you know, someone would kill and assassinate so that someone else could become into power. So one of, the, one of the emperors of Rome said, you know what? People have too much time on their hands, or they're doing nothing. So I want to build the Colosseum to entertain them. I want to entertain them so that way their minds are fixated on that and not overthrowing me. I want to entertain them. Think, think of that like even Satan. Like Satan wants us to have time on our hands so that we're entertained rather than fighting the battle before us. And then even in that, even when you look at the Colosseum could hold about 50,000 people, which was about half the city of Rome at one time, to entertain them by killing other humans, having other, kill, other humans mauled by bears and lions, having them fight one another. But Paul, when he says this, when he looks at this, he says we're, we're to resolve to be an example to those who are outside the faith by minding our own affairs and working with their hands. 
when he writes this, he talks about this impact that, that the church in Thessalonica has had on all of Macedonia. Macedonia is the region. Thessalonica is just one of the cities in the area. He says, because of you working, because of what you've done, you've made this impact. We desire, we should desire as followers of Christ to influence people to their salvation. Our lives are going to be very countercultural. It's going to be very different from how they live. That's why it says to flee from sexual immorality. They don't. They suppress it. They go into it. We are to flee from it. But when we do so, we are to influence them so that they come into relationship with Jesus. So, Father, Lord, I pray right now that our hearts would be bent to you and the word that you have for us. Father, I pray, Lord, even as I was reminded in between services, how your spirit reveals such powerful gospel truths into how it interacts with our lives to become very real, very authentic. Lord, we are your children, and we are waging in a war, and we're going through a lot of things. And we need your word to speak to us, to be revealed to us, so that we see how we are to live and to love, to be ambitious and leading a quiet life. So Lord, right now, I pray that as we go into this, this next song of worship, Lord, I pray that we be focused upon who you are, Jesus, and what you've done for us. That how we live, how our ethics are, come from the place of being your son, being your daughter, being a, a prince and a princess of the king. Jesus, you are so powerful. You are so marvelous. We desire to follow after you, to become more like you, Jesus, and less like ourselves. And so in your name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and let's worship together in song. I cast my mind to Calvary.